You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We have the voice now of Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan. We've been looking forward to the conversation. It's been a couple of weeks now that everybody's back in town. It's really interesting uh, to gauge sentiment on a lot of these issues. And, of course, nothing is bigger than this potential shutdown at the moment. The news has not been getting easier. From Pennsylvania's 6th District, it's wonderful to have you back, Congresswoman. Thank you for the time. I don't know what's going on in the House of Representatives, and maybe you don't either. There's talk about a motion to vacate, a government shutdown. You, apparently the military funding bill has bumped into a wall because of objections from some hardline Republicans, in this case, eyes on the Freedom Caucus. Are you bracing for a shutdown, or is this what it feels like, last-minute negotiations, if we can call it that? Uh, I'm not certain what the future holds either. I, I will say that I was sworn in about five years ago now into the longest shutdown, uh, as you might recall, in 2019, I think it was. Um, so I've, I've seen this before, and it's not pretty, and it's very, very harmful to people when it happens. So, of course, the vast majority of us would like to make sure that we avert that and, frankly, avert a continuing resolution, which is basically kicking the can down the road as well. But if I had to guess, we will end up with a continuing resolution um, and of some of some length of time. I've heard anywhere from one week to several months, um, and that is preferred over a shutdown, but certainly not an optimal choice. I very much hope that we can calmer heads will prevail, and I hope that we can find our way to keeping the government open and funded. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the speaker talked about his frustration uh, with a few members earlier today. Do the Matt Gateses uh, of the House take up too much oxygen to really understand what the Republican conference or your conference for that matter believes here? Are we, are we listening to the right people or is it just the, the, the fringe voices that are getting through? You know, with all respect to the speaker, I would push back and say there are 435 of us here. And as I mentioned, the majority of us would like very much to properly fund the government. And I think he needs to kind of look beyond his own party and beyond those people on the far, far right and understand that we're all here to serve our people and our community. And so I hope that he's thinking hard about the next steps. And I know it's at his peril, at his political peril, but there's just too many lives that are at stake in terms of uh, making sure people are able to go home with paychecks uh, for us mm -hmm. to continue to, to screw around with our parties. We, we really need to find each other in the middle. Is this talk of a motion to vacate real? Do you think you could be a house without a speaker 
in a couple of weeks? I, I'm confident the talk of motioning to vacate is real. And, and that's the position that the speaker put himself into when he was when he was voted in. I, there are a, you know, it only takes one, frankly, and, and not a whole lot of votes to actually vacate the chair. And I don't know, you know, we would certainly be as if we're not already in unprecedented uh, territory and unprecedented times. We would be in really un, unprecedented times at that point in time. Um, so I, I, I believe that I believe the Matt Gates is of the world when they speak. I guess you believe the Tommy Tubervilles of the world as well. We talked to you about this on Bloomberg TV, and I know it was something you were very passionate about as someone who's served your country. He has not, although I know that he's uh, told us repeatedly he was a military brat growing up. Uh, but he's not pulling back on this blockade uh, of military promotions, flag officers, general officers in objection to the Pentagon's abortion travel policy here. We actually spoke with him, Congresswoman, two days ago, and he pushed back on the idea that this was impacting military readiness. A brief remark from him here, and we'll have you reply. Here's what he said. They have no clue of what this policy is. They just wanted to change it to let the American people know, hey, we can do what we want to, and I'm not going to allow them to do it. Now, if they continue to do it, uh, we're going to have the same people in place as admirals and generals. Again, there's no readiness problem we got people in place that are doing their jobs. I know that you're concerned about a recruitment deterrent, about military families and temporary housing because of this. But speak to that issue of readiness. Is he right? You keep the same people. They're doing great now. You keep them there. It's not going to be an interruption in the chain of command. What do you think? That's positively asinine. Uh, I was in Hawaii and in Indo-Pacom uh, recently over the August um, work period. And there are four-star generals and admirals who are retiring with no one named and, and uh, to their as their successor. Nobody approved as their successor. This is an absolute readiness issue. And of course, it's a deterrent for people who want to you know, work in a functioning organization and they're not necessarily seeing the military as functioning. And it's also a deterrent when you're basically going against the, the majority of the will of the people. Most people support women's right to uh, be in, in charge of their own body. Most people believe in, in reproductive freedom. And so when you're looking at an all-volunteer military, uh, it, it can't help but affect recruiting and readiness. But it's insane for him to say that several hundred positions that now remain un, un, unconfirmed are not affecting our readiness right now. So what's the off-ramp here? He's showing no signs of backing down. We talked to uh, Congressman Michael McCall, uh, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, last evening. He's one of the few higher-ranking Republicans who called him out. He said this is paralyzing our military. Is that what it's going to take, more Republicans to pressure him to stand down? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm under no illusions that what I'm saying about Senator Tuberville matters at one whit to him. Um, what will take what it will take is certainly more Republicans in elected office and frankly, more constituents uh, of his, as well as people around the country to, to really lay to bear what's what's happening here. Perhaps more pressure from the military itself if, if there hasn't already been enough. Uh, so it, it is kind of uh, worrisome that this one person can hold um, several hundred uh, nominations at, at bay right now. And that's something that that is really concerning for many of us, I think. What does it mean uh, to have a military without a chairman of the Joint Chiefs? Because it looks like that's about to happen. 
you uh, you have to be just a person who's watched a movie, you know, to know that you can't have yeah. you can't have uh-huh. a military without its its brass, you know, or or somebody who just has worked at a company to know that if you're rudderless without leadership, it's going to matter. We just talked about vacating the chair in the House of Representatives. That will impact the ability of us to get our jobs done, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's common sense that we can't we can't hold this up like this. We're spending some time with Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. Uh, and you might not realize this, but you've actually had your eyes on her district uh, for some time here in the story involving this escaped fugitive uh, who, of course, generated headlines around the country, captured at least in the Congresswoman's district. And it brings us, Congresswoman, to your Invest to Protect Act. And I'd like to ask you about that. As we remember a couple of years ago, the theme of defunding the police, you're a Democrat who wants to fund the police. Where would the money go? Sure. And importantly, this is not my Invest to Protect Act, but it is supported by dozens and dozens of Republicans and Democrats alike, and I am one of them. And the Invest to Protect Act basically invests in places that we have traditionally not been as able or interested in investing in police forces. The vast majority of us, myself included, come from districts where most of our police forces are very, very small, sometimes fewer than a dozen people. And the Invest to Protect Act allows more competitive um, bidding processes and funding for people in those smaller communities and those smaller police forces to be able to afford things that they don't normally uh, compete for and be able to recruit in a different way as well so that they can compete with the Philadelphias. You know, my community is very rural in some areas and very small police forces. And, you know, if you've been watching the news, you've been watching my community. And so this Invest to Protect Act would do exactly what it's talking about, which is help our policemen protect us and be able to be as responsive as possible in, in, in situations such as we've just been watching. Do you worry about this leading to over-policing or, or military hardware getting into police departments? Sometimes these get to be uh, very gray lines. No, I understand. I understand the argument. And this bill is is supported bipartisanly by a lot of people who want to invest, of course, in our police force, but also want to protect our citizenry. And I think this Mm -hmm. particular piece of legislation does a really good job of making sure that we're educating police, uh, creating databases for police, um, making sure that we have a good relationship from citizen to police. Um, And I think that there can be both. You can have a protected um, citizenry and also a, a a strengthened police force as well. Can I just ask before I let you go, Congresswoman, are you glad to be back in Washington? Have you been dreading it all August? I feel as though that this is a really important time to be here uh, in Washington or in my community. Um, I'm fortunate that my community is just up the road a few hours, so I can kind of get back and forth pretty easily. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. I wish uh, Congress in Washington were much more uh, highly functional or functional at all in some cases. But I do think it's really important that I represent our community and that I'm physically here to do that. Well, I appreciate that, and I hope you'll stay in touch with us. Uh, the Congresswoman from Pennsylvania, Chrissy Houlihan, we thank you, as always, for talking with us today on Bloomberg. Joining us from Capitol Hill, if you were with us on the YouTube feed, you would have seen that. We invite you to search Bloomberg Global News on YouTube and join the party here. Of course, we always welcome you on the radio, on the satellite, and on the podcast as well here on Sound On Nation. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We assemble our panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Bloomberg Politics contributors, as we count down to a couple of potentially ugly headlines, uh, Jeannie, where's your head right now? Where's Joe Biden's head sitting in the West Wing watching the potential strike of a lifetime here in Detroit, apparently? All three of the big three is the last thing that Sean Fain said.
and a government shutdown could soon follow. How does he message around this? It is difficult to be president, you know, following on your question to the representative about is she happy or a little bit sad to be back in Washington? He's got a lot on his plate. And, you know, I think we've seen and and Jordan mentioned that the president has already been engaging with the automaker leaders, with with Sean Fain, with the union. I think we've seen in the past when this has come up with the railway strike and MLB and others that he engages sort of at the last minute. So I think we may hear about more of that today as we come up to this deadline. But at this point, it looks like he is going to be facing this strike. And for those reasons that Jordan went through both the EV push and then also, of course, because You know, Joe Biden really does need Michigan, and this can really ground those local economies in the Midwest to a halt. This could be potentially very, very difficult for him to handle. So I do think we're going to hear more about him working the phone, trying to get this together. But it looks like we are going to see a targeted strike by midnight tonight. And I have to say, Sean Fain is one of the most interesting union leaders we have seen in years, (laughs) mainly, you know, because uh, he is one of the first Democratic elected union leaders to the UAW. And boy, to watch him speak and his activism out there, it is truly, he is a force of nature. So Biden has a lot on his plate trying to get these two to find some common ground. I didn't have to bleep him today, Rick. What does Joe Biden think of Sean Fain? What do you think? Uh, You know, look, I think it's probably a nightmare every night uh, for the last week since he got back from Asia thinking about him. I mean, as Mm. Jeannie says, he's untethered. He's a democratically elected union boss. Uh, Not even sure you can call him a union boss. And and he is one of the very few big union heads who hadn't endorsed uh, Joe Biden right now. So this union is up for grabs. I mean, Republicans are sitting around you know, with their hands rubbing together going, come on, strike. Let's show those nasty corporations, you know, how to deal with you. I mean, look at what Donald Trump is doing. He's trying to cultivate the union head. I mean, since when has a Republican done that? Not since the 1970s with Richard Nixon. So, uh, I mean, it's really quite phenomenal. And I, I, it makes me worry that there is going to be a strike. And if it starts out targeted, it doesn't mean it ends that way. And, so we'll see tonight, but I, I suspect we'll be talking about this all next week and what impact it'll yep. have on some very key uh, targeted states. Well, let's let's pull on that thread a little bit here. Um, Jeannie, it's pretty interesting. We talked to Kevin Walling last evening on Balance of Power, and you know he's spent time doing some polling uh, for, for union labor here in Washington, D.C., and it's pretty clear that the rank and file are leaning Republican, while the union leadership is very much... Democratic. Is Rick forecasting a very important, potentially tectonic shift here in which union labor sides with Republicans? Donald Trump's asking for the UAW's endorsement in this race. Yeah, I mean, he has been working hard for that, and 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 rightly so. I mean, that is what our politicians should be doing. Um, and if it happens, it would be an enormous shift. But let's not forget, and I think this is critical, if the union is successful here, if they get even a part of what they're asking for, I mean, let's remember on pay alone, they're asking for a 40% increase to match what the CEOs have made as they in 2015 and 2016 got this huge boon in terms of these auto worker CEOs. He's asking that the workers get matched and a whole bunch of other things. If he gets even a portion of that, 
that may be seen as a big success. And you may see people who have looked at unions and particularly as we see openings of plants and others in the South and have not been particularly friendly to unions, they may say, hey, you know what? I want some of that. So if Bain is successful, if the union is successful, I don't know if we're going to see that shift, but it is possible. We really don't know. We are in uncharted territory here. And I think one of the brilliant things Fain has done, and I think Biden has to have some grudging respect for him, is he has kept, he, he is holding his fire in terms of who he's going to support. And he is making the case, look at you need to win us over and we want what we want and we're going to push for it. And if he goes out there and other people in manufacturing sectors follow and workers follow, that could be a huge boon for the union. So I think this is all waiting to be decided. But he has become a quickly a powerful figure in the labor movement and in manufacturing across the country, if not the world. Yeah. Rick, should every Republican candidate here for Congress, for president, be asking for union labor's endorsement? Well, look, there's certainly a strain of the party who's much more populous than uh, the past and mm-hmm. and appeal to these rank-and-file quasi-Democrats, quasi-Republicans in rural districts. Sure. I mean, that's what Donald Trump has brought into the Republican Party. That's how he's won election in 2016. And, and, and that's how people like Glenn Youngkin won the governorship of Virginia by appealing to what was historically rank and file Democratic voters in the in the uh, in the rural areas and said, hey, what have they done for you lately? And, you know, we 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 are going to go out there and 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 work hard for you. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's happening right now. It's not the whole party, but it's a big strain of it. And and it also shows a decline in the support for the Republican Party for corporate America. Corporate America has been thrown under the bus by both parties now. And so it'll be interesting <laughs> to see where they turn. Boy. All right. So let's go from one countdown clock to another. We'll find out about the strike before midnight tonight, although Fain again is talking at 10 p.m. Uh, and it might be a couple of hours before that. On the other side, we have a countdown to a potential government shutdown and at the end of this month is the end of the fiscal year. We told you yesterday uh, Republicans in the House blocked a couple of them, at least uh, blocked debate from even beginning on the military funding bill. And there are concerns that we might be a lot closer to a shutdown now than when we were even 24 hours ago. The speaker is not happy. I showed frustration in here because I am frustrated with the committee. I'm frustrated with some people in the conference. We had the DOD appropriation bill yesterday. I couldn't put it on the floor. I don't have one complaint by any member of what's wrong with this bill. Can't imagine who he's referring to. <laughs> Matt Gates on MSNBC last evening asked if he was looking for special treatment around his ethics issue in his leveraging of whatever social power he has here against the speaker. Of course, he keeps calling for the motion to vacate. He wants Kevin McCarthy fired. That is an abject lie from a sad and pathetic man who lies to hold on to power. Okay. He lied to get power in January when he made this agreement, and he's lying now about the basis for breach. And you know what? Eventually, the lying has to come to an end, and the votes are going to start on a motion to vacate. Uh, I certainly hope that instead of that path, the Speaker comes into compliance on term limits, balanced budgets, and single-subject spending bills. And guess what? Mm. If yeah. that happens, there will be no motion to vacate. <laughs> That's all you've got to do, Mr. Speaker. Uh, are the walls closing in, Jeannie? 
are. I mean, total compliance is what Matt Gates wants. And, you know, can you just imagine Nancy Pelosi or any of our strong speakers in the past putting up with this kind of dis nonsense, really, from Matt Gates? I mean, you know, Matt Gates has made himself sort of the head of the Republican Party in the House, and he is going to tell the speaker exactly what he has to do. You know, at some point, we are going to have to see Kevin McCarthy stand up to Matt Gates and shut this down. And of course, Matt Gates has a point. He made this deal. We don't know what's in the deal, quite frankly, because it was never released. But there was some deal made so he can become speaker. And now he is at the whim of Matt Gates going around telling him total com compliance or you're out. It is a disaster for Kevin McCarthy. It's a disaster for the Republican Party. We are facing an imminent shutdown. If they're going to do that on military appropriations, how are they mm -hmm. going to get through the rest of the spending in a measly 14 days? It's unthinkable, really. You imagine Rick is a member calling the speaker a sad, pathetic man on national television. They're in the same party. Yeah, what do you need a Democrat for in the House? You've got Republicans <laughs> attacking each other. I mean, yeah. honestly, it's like just a great day for the Democratic leadership in the House. Uh, all their job is being done for them. And and, and it is a, uh incredible failure of uh, the Speaker's leadership not to be able to get a vote on the NDAA. I mean, this is a bill that is a must-pass they are far behind the Senate on it. It needs to happen. And the, and the speaker let uh, a number of these guys in the Freedom Caucus loaded up with all these, you know, anti-woke amendments. And now nobody will vote for it. Republicans won't vote for it. Democrats won't vote for it. I mean, it's dead on arrival. And yet they've got to pass one in order to get into a conference with the, the Senate to get a bill out. I mean, it's the most messed up. I mean, Annette, we're not even talking about the government shutdown or the Ukraine spending bill or the other supplemental the administration asked for or any of the uh, uh, any of the appropriations bills that they're waiting to pass. I mean, it is a disaster inside the Republican leadership. Wow. That's coming from Rick Davis. Uh, we've got breaking news, and sometimes the breaker is just not a surprise. But the headline just crossed the terminal. Hunter Biden indicted on federal firearms charges in Delaware. I didn't think we were going to talk about this today, guys, but we did see it coming. Special counsel David Weiss told us, by the way, about a week ago that by the end of the month he was going to do this. So uh, this could be a bit of a tree falling in the woods. I don't know if this is a huge deal for uh, the White House genie since it was already out there. But does this make the case for the impeachment inquiry a bit stronger? No, it doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, Hunter Biden lied on the forum. He published a book saying he was doing drugs and he lied on the forum saying he wasn't. Any of us who did, who did that would be held responsible. That has nothing to do with his father beyond the fact he must feel horrible as a parent. And so Hunter Biden is going to have to, if the deal is not on the table as it no longer is, he's going to have to face the law on that. But it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. If they are able to show a quid pro quo when Joe Biden was vice president, that would be a different story. But the fact that an adult signed a gun form saying he wasn't doing drugs and he was, that is up to him and he's going to have to pay the price. What do you think of this, Rick? Is it the type of headline that lands with a thud here? I expect it's all we're going to hear about for the rest of the day on Newsmax and the rest of the conservative networks. Yeah, every day that Hunter Biden is in the news is a bad day for the 
President Biden re-election campaign. I mean, regardless of what else is happening around the world, this is there's no upside. There's no positive associated with a Hunter Biden story. And in this case, as Jeannie said, has nothing to do with the president, but it just reminds us of the trials and tribulations of Hunter Biden and mm-hmm. and the potential indictment that looms in front of the president in the House. Does the White House uh, say nothing on this, Jeannie? It's all they'll be asked about in the briefing or on Air Force One now. Yeah, they're going to be pressured to respond. And I think they say the same thing they have. The president feels horrible. His adult son has battled with a drug addiction and he is going to stand up and he is going to have to pay for what he did. And that, you know, both uh, Joe Biden and, and, and the first lady feel horrible and they are feeling like he is getting better and that he is going to take this responsibility. But there's not much else to say beyond that. They have to do what Joe Biden said yesterday in Virginia, which is to say we're working for the American people and we mm-hmm. love our son. There you have it from Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis on a breaking story. We've just learned that Hunter Biden indicted on federal firearms charges in Delaware. The headline crossed the terminal. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. How to follow the $500 billion meeting as Washington plans its next move on artificial intelligence after the big meeting yesterday with the titans of tech behind closed doors. We're joined in a moment by Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, who's working with Chuck Schumer now on a bipartisan approach to this fast-evolving technology. We'll be very curious to hear what she has to say coming up next. Later, a special conversation with Amos Huckstein, the White House Senior Advisor for Energy and Investment. will be joined for that by Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern for the conversation. So let's get to it here. Kaylee Lines, it's great to see you. Welcome back, of course, to the program, fresh off the crypto conversation. 
And it's an interesting thing because Congress is trying to get its arms around crypto as well. Mm-hmm. This artificial intelligence story, though, yesterday, it just reminds us of how kind of abstract this is as an issue to regulate. Yeah, both technology-oriented issues that senators have been trying to get their arms around, those in the House as well. The difference is in the House, we actually have some seen, seen some legislation passed out of committee yes. in regard to regulating crypto. Yeah. In the Senate... AI regulation and actual bills being produced, maybe we're not quite there yet, even if there was a big summit that took place yesterday. Well, that's true. We can call it a summit, right? It was not a hearing. We know that. No. Uh, Closed door. (laughs) The senator from Tennessee is with us to talk about it. We've talked AI before with Marsha Blackburn, but it takes on new meaning after this meeting yesterday. Senator, welcome back to Bloomberg. We appreciate your time here. I wonder uh, to what extent this was an important moment, not so much for the the drive to regulate, but just to get everyone's attention on a critical matter. What was it like to be in the room? Well, it was good to have everyone assembled before us. It was appropriate that we turn our attention in a more fulsome way to the issue of emerging technologies. And whether it is blockchain or quantum computing or AI, the U.S., if we're going to maintain our leadership, we need to step up and say, what can we do that is going to be helpful so that the private sector does what they do best, which is to innovate and to bring forth these ideas, build these companies, and then create those jobs and that tech leadership that is prized globally. So, Senator, as you say, it was important to just kind of highlight the need to do something here. It just becomes a question of how quickly something is actually going to be able to be done. Senator Schumer said he would like to see this addressed in months, not years. What's your degree of confidence that an actual regulatory framework legislation is going to be passed by the Senate anytime soon? Well, we have to realize that the EU does have a federal privacy standard, which we are yet to pass. And everyone says that's got to be building block number one. And the EU is ready to pass their AI Act, as they're calling it. And this will put their framework in place. So the U.S. does, over the next few months, need to do a national online consumer privacy bill which allows people to keep their information out of that open source network. That would allow them to build a firewall around their content. We also need to do a data security bill. And then we need the rules of the road for AI and making certain that the environment that you've got a referee, as it was referred to many times yesterday, that is there to call those balls and strikes and make certain that that environment stays healthy for innovators. We've talked to people over the last couple of days that have chosen to establish their country, their company in the U.S. rather than elsewhere because they want to protect their intellectual property. So they have chosen here. We need to make certain that we keep that robust environment. Senator, I know that you've not always been a fan of big tech, uh, particularly the social media companies. I wonder, was yesterday's exercise an opportunity to learn from these executives or to put them on notice? It was a wonderful opportunity to learn from them, to see how they see 
the utilizations of AI. You know, we have lived with AI for years. We've talked about AI and applications, uh, facial recognitions, auto uh, correct, auto fill, uh, voice assist. All of those things are AI applications. And in my state of Tennessee, whether it's the healthcare industry, the logistics industry, auto manufacturing, there are so many utilizations of AI. Also, we have our entertainers, songwriters, singers, musicians, authors, publishers, uh, who are very concerned about what is going to happen with voice cloning, with concepts like chat GPT or jukebox, and how that may rob them of the potential, their constitutional right to benefit from their creations. So getting everybody in the room, giving everyone some education, not everybody works on these issues all the time, like members like I have. And it is important for people to have an understanding so they have that foundation and we can begin to move forward on this legislation with an understanding of why it is important. Senator, we could continue this conversation with you all day, but as the AI conversation is move, moving forward, there are some things that just aren't moving at all in the U.S. Senate right now, including military promotions and nominations, thanks to your Republican colleague, Senator Tommy Tuberville. What's your message to him right now? Should this continue? Well, the message is to Leader Schumer, who, as even some of the Democrats have said, look, let's begin to put these on the floor and let's call the vote. Today, we have had one vote. Um, we had one vote on Monday. There have been opportunities to put these nominations on the floor and call them. And also, Senator Tuberville has said, if, the, if you've got the command team over at DOD, that would sit down with him, discuss a policy that they could probably work this out. Do you worry about military families in Tennessee who are in temporary housing or might have missed uh, a pay increase because of these delays? We are always concerned about our military families and uh, we continue to work with our military families. That's one of the reasons we work so hard on getting the NDAA across the finish line because of the pay increase for our men and women in uniform. Uh, I've got to ask you about the matter of impeachment, Senator. I wonder if you're preparing sure. to receive uh, an impeachment referral. And I'm asking you this as we just learned that Hunter Biden has been indicted on gun charges. I know these two are not related but it's hard to ask you about one and not the other. Yes, and on the impeachment, I appreciate why Leader McCarthy felt like he needed to move forward with this and why the House members who were on these committees wanted to move forward with the inquiry. They need to preserve their ability to issue subpoenas and to have those acted upon. And because of that, they needed to move forward with the impeachment inquiry. I think that you will see them continue to gather information and to determine uh, what is alleged, what actually transpired, and really kind of build those threads out. The American people want answers on this. They want to know what the then vice president did in conjunction with Hunter Biden and also 
with uh, with Biden Incorporated. And when it comes Senator to Hunter Biden and these indictments, I am certain mm -hmm. that they chose to go with the gun charges first, uh, the three charges that are in this indictment, because they don't want to be pulling the president in for depositions. Senator, just quickly, do you not worry about the precedent that could be being set here, just impeaching one president after another, depending on what party is in control of the House? We always worry about precedent that is set. And many of us try to continue to work across the aisle. And uh, we, I spend a good bit of time working on legislation and efforts that I have to make them bipartisan because bipartisan legislation is going to stick and making certain that you are writing legislation that is going to be good for Tennesseans and all Americans, that is going to improve the quality of life for Tennesseans and all Americans. That is something vitally important to me. Senator, we appreciate your coming to talk to us about all matters of import, including artificial intelligence. That's a conversation that will not be going away and we'll stay in touch with Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. She's back. Anne-Marie Hordern with us in studio. It's great to see you. I love the way this works. Almost Hochstein shows up, and so do you. This is excellent. We've got another opportunity to spend some time. It's great to see you Thanks. as we try to decipher uh, the takeaways from the G20. Yeah, that's right. Amos is uh, back from this trip from the G20, and on the sidelines, they were able to get this deal done that I know that he looks after broader infrastructure connecting the dots, but this will go through the Middle East mm -hmm. into Southeast Asia, also to Europe. Um, but I think there's broader implications what the U.S. is trying to do in the region, specifically with Saudi Arabia and Israel, and maybe deals like this potentially mm -hmm. help the U.S. get to that final broader policy goal. 
the White House Senior Advisor for Energy and Investment. Amos, welcome back. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Apparently, this was a very good trip for the administration. President Xi wasn't there. President Putin wasn't there. President Biden was there. And as we consider this deal that uh, Anne-Marie just described, that hasn't gotten enough attention, is this your answer to Belt and Road? Well, first, thank you for having me. It's good, uh, it's good to be back on the show. Uh, look, I think it was a very good G20. Uh, I think the world came together on a number of very important issues, specifically on economic issues and what the world is facing as we are reaching so many inflection points. I think to your point, the president, President Biden said he wished that President Xi was there. Uh, but nonetheless, um, there was a, it was a very good summit and uh, underscored the importance of the G20 itself and that we can, the world can come together and resolve uh, some specific issues and, and tough uh, questions within the context of the G20. So I think the G20 was strengthened by this, uh, by this summit and we're looking forward to future work. Look, the, the event that we held uh, at the G20 with, uh, President, with Prime Minister Modi, with President Biden, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Sheikh Mohammed of UAE, uh, together with the President of the EU Commission and the Presidents and Heads of State of France, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan, underscored what we can all do together. We've talked for decades about connecting uh, Asia to Europe. And this is finally, for the first time, actually putting uh, this infrastructure together. So from the connecting the ports of India and the UAE, connecting India by rail to Vietnam and Myanmar uh, so that you really have Southeast Asia to South Asia to the Middle East, and then from ship to rail, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, mm. and then from there by ship to Europe. That cuts down on the cost of shipping products and goods, reducing costs, making them more efficient and cleaner, less diesel when you do a lot less shipping time and more on, on rail, which is both faster and cleaner. So connecting that then and putting subsea cables for high-speed data, uh, for hydrogen and electricity, instead of transporting molecules of oil or gas, we're going to be transporting electrons of electricity. And this way, Saudi Arabia, UAE can produce enormous amounts of clean energy. And, but they don't have the markets the, to be able to sell that to. So now if we can connect these dots and connect that to Europe, that wants to buy more clean electricity but doesn't have the ability to produce it, suddenly this is a, a match that works. And so we've been working for many months on putting this together, uh, making sure we have the financing, the arrangements. This is not an easy thing to do diplomatically. There are not everybody uh, is a natural ally. Yeah. But I think uh, putting it together, that event really underscored what we can do when we work together. Well, Saudi Arabia at this moment doesn't even recognize Israel. Do you see this as a first step for potentially that normalization between Riyadh and Jerusalem? Well, as you know, the president, when he went to Saudi Arabia last year, talked about um, his wish to be able to facilitate more regional integration. Uh, we had announced, he, president announced during his visit, the first overflights from Israel. Mm. Uh, he himself was the first flight to fly from Israel direct to Jeddah uh, on that trip. And since then, there's been a lot of reports of some of the conversations that we're working on. I think that there's a lot of work still to do. Uh, where we have a long way to go. Uh, some of the reports are a little bit ahead of where the discussions are. But it gets are. done in this administration, you think? You know, I think if the parties uh, come together, and we can achieve uh, what we're trying. But uh, again, maybe. Uh, but we're, we're working towards that goal, uh, and we have to see if we can get there. But this arrangement that allows for infrastructure that connects Saudi Arabia, ultimately Europe, through Israel, is definitely a, a big step forward. It is not part of normalization, and there are not going to be direct 
conversation between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That's clearly can't happen at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea that the United States can facilitate this conversation. While we signed the MOU with all of the countries I mentioned, we also signed a separate MOU of just between the United States and Saudi that allows us to be the that sort of directs the United States and we acknowledge that we'll facilitate uh, this entire transaction, including how to work out the differences so we can go through Israel. Spending some time with Amos Hochstein, uh, White House Senior Advisor for Energy and Investment. Anne-Marie Hordern is with me here on Bloomberg Sound On. We have to ask you about energy prices right now because there's so much talk about crude oil at $90 a barrel. We've had any number of forecasters tell us we could see 100 Did you miss an opportunity to refill the SPR while prices were, say, in the 60s? Or were your hands tied by the bidding process? I don't think we missed an opportunity. The president said very clearly that when prices came down to the lower 70s, uh, we would be opportunistic and buy uh, oil on the market in order to refill the SPR, which mm -hmm. is a strategic asset. Uh, we did that. And in fact, we made a number of purchases uh, during that time when prices were lower. Uh, we'll continue to take that approach that when prices are right, we will uh, continue to purchase crude uh, and make sure that we refill the SBR. The SBR has an you know, still has significant amount of resource in it, uh, which we need for emergencies. Uh, but we're we are in a position of of buying in uh, as soon as we can. So we have crude prices, WTI, above 90 today. So that's a significant development. The IEA says we're going to see a significant shortfall. And we're past peak driving season here in America, and we have prices approaching $4 a gallon. What does the administration have in its toolbox to potentially insulate consumers at the pump? So let me make a couple of points, because you're right. Uh, the facts are there. The president has been clear that he wants to make sure that American families have uh, less of a burden and that costs don't hurt American families, especially families that have one or two drivers. Uh, and he's still committed to that. Uh, we see uh, a couple of factors that are coming into the oil price increase. One is, obviously, you've stated it yourself, uh, OPEC has, uh, has decreased supply uh, and constrained supply. And they did that when prices were significantly lower uh, than they are today. Uh, since then, since that decision, uh, prices have come back up to some degree because of that. The other factor is that Bidenomics works, right? We have an economy that is strong, uh, and we have a labor market that is strong where wages are higher than, than costs. And we want, uh, when, when that happens, when you have uh, a strong economy and stronger than people had expected to have at this point, as, re as resilient as it has, then you also have demand growth. So there is stronger demand when you have stronger manufacturing and stronger uh, productivity. It comes with demand growth. But so between the, the supply. Good, but people don't feel it because of inflation. And pump prices is one of them. The latest inflation report, more than 10 percent. The biggest increase in the inflation report was gasoline. So as I said, we are seeing the factors for it, for oil prices coming up. Uh, we think that we're just in the process of ending driving season. Temperatures are still high. Uh, we should see uh, some inventory buildup uh, over the coming days. Uh, we've seen uh, record production in the United States. And, and again, there's been this idea that somehow uh, clean energy policies or energy transition policies are related. The president has been able to say the United States can do two things at the same time. Number one, accelerate the energy transition so that we're not as reliant on fossil fuels. At the same time, recognizing a transition takes time, and we need fossil fuels at the moment to power our economy and to power our families. 
So to do that, we're still looking at production in the United States. We're seeing record production in the United States. So there's nothing this administration is doing that is restricting production to the point that it's hurting uh, the manufacturing side or the, uh, the energy system. So we're seeing record production. We're seeing a more production coming on. Uh, we've seen some curtailment out of Libya, uh, out of the heartbreaking disaster of the floods there. So I think that as we come into the next several days, we're going to continue to monitor these prices very, very carefully uh, and look at what our options are. Uh, I think we'll, we will see some reduction and some relief uh, at the price is what we're hoping to see as we make this transition from summer into fall and seasonality uh, plays into it. Uh, and we'll continue to monitor and see what we can do as we go forward. I know we're just about out of time, but I, I wonder to what extent you remain in touch with the oil companies. There's been so much talk about the friction between this administration and drillers. Uh, you talked about record production levels, though. To what extent are you in touch on this and encouraging this? Look, I'm not going to break any news by saying that uh, we don't. the Biden administration and the oil companies are not in agreement on many issues. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, we do have a – we're all adults – and we have conversations to understand where it is. The president has been clear last year. We want to accelerate the energy transition. We want oil companies to be a part of the energy transition, of decarbonizing what they're doing, and to invest in renewable energy. They know the energy system. They're probably as, as good as anyone else to do it. Mm. But at the same time, we've told them, the president has told them, you need to invest in America at a time of this energy transition. And I think that uh, as, as we look at the facts, we're at record production. There's not much more that we can uh, argue that the administration is restricting it or that prices are there because somehow we're doing something in the United States to restrict it. So we have to look at the domestic factors. We are in touch with the oil companies. I promise you several people in the administration talk to them regularly, mm -hmm. and we do the same thing with the international uh, oil producers uh, as well. Uh, and again, this is the United States. We can do both things at the same time. We don't have to only do one thing. And I I think, again, the, with the economy as strong as it is at the moment, with the labor market as strong as it is, we have to manage the, the balance here of making sure that inflation doesn't uh, cost American families, and that's, that's what we are singularly focused on. We're really glad you came over. Thanks for the update on all of these important issues, and glad to have you back from the G20. Almost Hochstein. Many thanks for being with us here on Bloomberg. Thanks for having uh, me. Anne-Marie, it, it reminds us that this is, and you know it as well as anyone, having spent as much time as you had covering uh, oil and the energy markets, this is a global market, mm -hmm. and this administration can only have so much of an impact. This country can only have so Yeah, much one thing almost does say that I think gets lost a lot when you speak to a lot of individuals as well on Capitol Hill is mm -hmm. that the U.S. is the number one when it comes to right. production. So if Saudi Arabia does something, they're in the top three, but we are still number one. I think the issue is at the moment is that when you have Saudi Arabia and Russia working together – to cut, which we thought was going to be a month, but now into three months. Yes, right. And then the IEA coming out and saying they see a significant uh, d disconnect mm -hmm. and they see that we're going to be short in the market, then you have prices go up. And we have to see uh, how much that actually trickles down, though, into gasoline prices. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, don't be a stranger. Almost great to see you. Great to have you back, Anne-Marie Hordurin. This is like a daily thing See you at 5 p.m. Wow. I, I can't thank you enough. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.